We find ourselves this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and if you're visiting with us, we uh, typically go through books of the Bible verse by verse, and so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, uh, excuse me, verses 12 through 20. I had a mini heart attack in the back there just a second ago. I opened my Bible and read chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and thought I prepared the wrong sermon, but I was in 2 Corinthians, so we're in 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. And my key words for our worshipers in training are body, join, and spirit. And the title of my sermon is Glorify God in Your Body. If you remember last week, we spoke of the preceding verses that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's read those first, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual, sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul was addressing those who habitually walked in these sins, unrepentant, habitually walking in these sins that he lists out. And he says, if this is indicating the sort of life that you live, the things that you follow, the the pattern that you go about from day to day, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he uses that to relate to the believers and said, such were some of you. These were the patterns of many of your lives. This is what you once walked in. But be assured, believer, that you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God made you a new creation. And so he used those who will not inherit the kingdom of God to point to those who will and say it is by God's grace alone that you are able to live and walk in the peace and grace of God. And so what Paul is going to do now is continue to address the Corinthians sin. They had many, many practices that they dragged with them into their Christian life from their former pagan associations. They had Many practices we've seen throughout these last few chapters that they took from the culture they were a part of, from the world that they were used to as pagans, and they dragged those into now their, uh, their new Christian association. And so they were suing one another out of greed and trying to defraud one another because the, uh, the world of the lawsuit was entertainment in Corinth. And then we see that they're trying to walk in ways that are not consistent with the Scriptures. They're being tolerant of a man who is having sexual relations with his stepmother. And so we see these practices that they are accepting and saying uh, that we are tolerant and therefore they're arrogant in their tolerance. And so Paul continues in bringing up more that he sees within the Corinthian church that is inconsistent with what God desires of His people. And I want to start by saying that before we jump into this, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, today will probably be absolutely ridiculous to you what I'm going to say. Because it's not going to make sense. And it's probably going to seem very outdated and archaic and boring and unrealistic and uptight. And you're going to find reasons to reject what I say and then seek to rationalize your own practices of what the Bible calls sin. But we can see in this very passage that we're turning to that there are incredible comparisons between the city of Corinth and the United States of America. This is our culture in many ways that we're reading about. Corinth, the very name of the city, was synonymous with sex. The verb to Corinthianize meant to have sex with a prostitute. That's what the verb means. And so this city 
was known for that practice because it was widespread. It was flagrant. It was always in their face. This is what they did. And now they're in the church saying it's our environment. This is the environment we're in. And so we're just adapting to our environment. They're seeking to rationalize that sexual sin was actually something that was okay. Theologically, they rationalize it by saying, well, we're under grace. Remember, Paul addressed that. Do we sin all the more that grace may abound? What does Paul say? By no means. Never. But theologically, they said, we're under the grace of God. So no matter what we do, we will be forgiven. Therefore, uh, this is an acceptable practice. So theologically, they sought to rationalize their sexual sin in that manner. And then philosophically, they were saying things like it's, it's just a biological act. It's just how we're created. That's what we do. And therefore, we do that. We've heard that often. So Paul is now going to dismantle their ridiculous arguments for why they thought it okay to tolerate and walk in sexual immorality. Let's read verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price of glorify God in your body. We'll begin with limits that Paul places on our liberties. This is my first point. Liberties, limits. Verses 12 and 13. Let's read those again. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Notice in that passage that there are quotation marks around certain phrases there. All things are lawful for me. We see quotation marks around those statements. Those were statements that the Corinthians were using to justify their sins. Paul had heard that the Corinthians were saying, all things are lawful for me. I'm a Christian now, so all things are lawful. I'm not bound by any legal code. And so Paul is saying, I'm aware of what you claim when you are being confronted with your sin. And you pretend that all things are lawful for you without any limitation and any reserve. He says, that's not, that's not so. That is not the case. And in this first part, he puts two limitations on what they claim to be liberties. The first thing he points to is, he says, not all things are helpful. Some were justifying their sin as being okay because they said we're not under the law. So grace is going to cover it. Grace will make it acceptable. But Paul is saying legality, whether or not something is legal, is not the test that a Christian should apply. The test that the Christian should apply is, is it helpful? Is it profitable? Who cares if it's legal? Is it profitable? And is it possible to sin in this and be forgiven? Yes. So do we sin? 
Absolutely not. So we must ask, is it helpful? Not is it legal? That's such a low standard. This really helps us to determine if our heart is fixed on religious, moralistic practices seeking to earn God's favor. If walking in our freedom in Christ. If we're bound by that which we've been released from in the Gospel of Christ, then our question is going to be, is it legal or not? We simply want lists. What can I do? What can't I do? And we'll just stick to that. I don't, want to, I don't want to walk in the gray. I don't want to have to use wisdom. I don't want to apply principles of Scripture and sorting these things out. I don't want to ask if it's helpful. I simply want to know, can I do it or can I not do it? Paul's saying, you can't ask that question. That's a religious question. Religion says, ask the question, is it permissible? Yes or no. The gospel question is, is it helpful? Is it profitable? Does it build up or does it tear down? Does it honor Christ? Does it advance the kingdom or does it not? Those are the questions to apply. And so right off the bat, you may be thinking, well, are you saying that if something is not focused on advancing the kingdom as an activity, then it's not wise or helpful? Not necessarily. It's not necessarily what I'm saying. But when we ask the question of something, we ask, is it helpful in that? Does it afford me the opportunity to make much of Christ in whatever it is? Whether that is golfing or going out to a nice dinner or driving your car down the road. Does that afford me the opportunity to make much of Christ? Or does it lack all signs of godliness? Is it sex with a prostitute, as Paul is addressing here in a minute? Don't ask, is it legal? Don't ask, can I do black tar heroin? Ask, is that profitable? Okay, the law says no, so I won't. Who cares what the law says? What do the Scriptures say? What do the Scriptures call us to? Is it profitable? So we must not ask, can I? We must ask, is it helpful? The second restriction that Paul places on this idea of liberty is, I will not be enslaved by anything. They were saying all things are lawful. And Paul was saying, okay, Let's just assume that you're right there. All things are lawful. Are you enslaved? Are you in bondage? In other words, do not live in slavery. Do not live in bondage. And this might be gluttony, an uncontrollable appetite. It can be drunkenness, sexual addiction. It goes on and on and on. Do not be enslaved by anything. Look at verses 2 and 3 we covered a couple weeks ago. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? He was pointing us to the fact that There will come a day where we will rule with Christ. We will reign over all creation. And in many ways, he's saying, do not be subject to that which should be subject to you. Do not subject yourselves to the things that God has given to you to take dominion over. God gave man this command to take dominion. Don't reverse that and don't become enslaved to anything. Again, the religious question, can I do it? Yes or no? I just want a yes or no answer. Is there something I can do? The gospel question is, am I a slave to this? 
Is this food, this drink, this sex, this hobby, this job? Is any of this becoming my master instead of my servant? If it is, do not become enslaved to it. Christians will not be slaves to physical pleasures. When we do, we worship the creation rather than the Creator. When we find our greatest joy in the things of this world, we are saying they are far greater than the joy offered to me in Christ. Consider this also. There are many who will begrudgingly fight to not restrain their liberties under any circumstances whatsoever. And in making that fight and planning those stakes, they're actually putting halters of necessity around their own necks and becoming enslaved to the very thing they're free in. This desire to fight for my liberties and say, it is my liberty, I will do it at all costs, no matter what, is actually one enslaving themselves to that very liberty. And we'll really touch on this in a few weeks because Paul addresses that later in 1 Corinthians, so I won't dwell there. But very important to see both sides of this. We'll also see instruction. The most important thing in understanding liberty is a view of edification. Putting others first. Not causing someone else to stumble. And on the other side, not judging those who take liberty. The balance, the gray area that we must walk in. And so we'll cover that in a few weeks. But is important to this passage as Paul brings this up here. So then he moves on into verse 13. Paul has given these two restrictions. Is it helpful? And am I enslaved to it? Those are the questions that must be asked. So he's given those restrictions and now he gives a complete prohibition. He uses another phrase. Notice the quotation marks that the Corinthians have been using to justify their sin to prove their point. They said food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Their line of thought was food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. So they're using a a logic problem here. And they said, so let's take that and now say sex is for the body. So the body is for sex. We're natural, normal human beings with biological function, so we're going to act on them. It's a natural thing. This is what the body's designed for. This is what God created us for, and so we're going to walk in those things. It's our liberty. That's what our bodies are for. And Paul is saying, your argument is completely and totally flawed. Your food and your stomach are destined for destruction. Your body is not for sexual sin, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so he gives these restrictions on liberty and says, is it helpful? Does it enslave me? And now he gives a complete prohibition and says, you do not have the liberty to walk in fornication. You do not have the liberty to be in sexual immorality. You have liberties, you must be wise in those liberties, but fornication is not one of them. And sexual immorality was so prevalent in Corinth, they were actually convinced that it was a liberty. They thought because it was everywhere around them and a practice they brought into their new life as Christian that it was something that they could say that it was a liberty. Does this sound familiar to us? Absolutely. We hear of people wanting to determine before they marry if they're sexually compatible. Or they'll say silly things like, well, we're, we're married in our hearts. Or we're, we're, we're friends, but we're friends with benefits. Or, well, God, God knows our circumstances. He knows, he knows our hearts and it's okay. We got this 
we got this thing with God. It's cool. We got it all worked out. Or, well, we're not engaging in intercourse, so it's okay. These are, these are the things that those in our culture want to say in order to justify sexual immorality. This is rampant. This is widespread. But Paul says your body is for the Lord. And the Lord is for your body. Saying Christians are conjoined to Christ by the Father. Therefore, how wicked it is to tear away our body in that sacred connection and give it over to things unworthy of Christ. Men and women are not animals with simple sexual instincts to just do it indiscriminately. We're image bearers of God. And this is a holy and sacred gift given to us by God. I want to make that point because many of us were raised on this idea that sex is a bad and nasty and ugly thing. It's bad, don't do it, don't do it, don't go there. It's bad, don't talk about it, don't think about it. And then you get married and everything's okay. It doesn't work that way. We have to understand that This is a gift from God. This is something God has granted to us. But He does so in a way that conforms to the way He has created all things. He has given it to us as a gift to be enjoyed within the covenant bonds of marriage. And it is a gift. It was a gracious gift of God. Sexual union between a husband and a wife for procreation and pleasure. One of the very first commands we see in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. Have sex and make babies. The Scriptures cherish the goodness of sex within the bounds of the marriage covenant. Read the Song of Solomon. There's an entire book of the Bible that is filled with love songs and poetry between two lovers who are walking in marital bliss, enjoying this gift that God has granted. And so Paul is saying, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Enjoy that which God has given to you in proper bounds, knowing that it is pleasing unto the Lord. And in the selfishness of the Corinthians, and in the selfishness of our society, we have sought to completely separate the primary meaning of sexual union, namely procreation. Married Christians must be open to having children. It's not always possible. It's not always a possibility. But we must recognize that in the Bible, uh, sexual union and childbearing go hand in hand. We cannot separate those two things. So the idea that we will go our entire lives married without children, not because we can't have them, but because we simply choose not to, is falling into the selfish pursuits that the world strives for. The world desires. But rather we must see that while God has given it to us for pleasure and enjoyment within the bounds of marriage, He has also given it for the purpose of procreation. We cannot separate that out. And He says the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. Remember, to be very clear, fornication means Sexual activity outside of marriage. Use your body. Use the gift of sex for its intended purposes within the marriage covenant. But fornication is outside of marriage. It is not pleasing unto God. And so instead of asking, well, then how far can we go? That's that's the complete and total wrong question. 
we must ask, how can we honor Christ? How far can we push this thing? Paul's already addressed that. Don't ask, can we do it or can't we? Ask, is it helpful? Is it profitable? How can we honor Christ? Let's move on. Secondly, he says we are members of Christ. Verses 14 through 17. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Christ was received to glory and we too will be raised up by the power of God. Therefore, two things. One, it is unseemly and unlawful that our bodies, which are consecrated with Christ, should be given over to fornication. And two, it is detestable that we would prostitute our bodies to worldly things when it is destined to partake of the heavenly glories with Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are joined with Christ as believers in such a way that we become one body with Him. So when I seek after the polluted things of this world, my focus is not on the things above, and I drag Christ into that pollution. Paul is saying, if I fornicate, if I engage in sexual immorality, if I have any sexual interaction outside of marriage... I have myself become and I have attached myself to a harlot. I have prostituted myself and caused someone else to prostitute themselves. And if I'm claiming to be a Christian, I drag Christ right into the middle of it. So we can ask Paul's question, should I do it? Is it profitable? By no means. He says that never. Literally, he says, God forbid that you would do such a thing. Our connection with Christ is not just our soul, but our very body. Jesus is with us in every way. And as Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we drag that with us in the pollution of sexual immorality. Now, is it possible? Is it possible for true believers in Christ, for Christians to sin in fornication? Yes. Yes, it is. We are not outside the bounds of any sin as Christians. But, if a Christian is engaged in sexual immorality, they will be repentant. They will turn from that sin. It will not be habitual because they know that they're bringing Christ into that sin and they're implicating Jesus in that sin. Understanding that we are not individuals. We are not alone. And so while it is possible for a true believer in Christ to fall into sin and specifically in this passage to fall into the sin of fornication, the true believer in Christ will have a great longing to repent and be cleansed because of the guilt that is crying out in their conscience. It will turn from the sin. In verse 16, Paul expounds more fully on the injury that is done to Christ's name in fornication. And it shows that sexual immorality is corruption of a sacred union intended for marriage. Fornication is a polluted and impure fellowship. And then in verse 17, he draws the connection between a husband and a wife becoming one flesh. When a husband unites to his wife, they become one flesh. 
And likewise, he draws the comparison that when Christians are united to God through Christ, we become one spirit. And this being of one spirit with God is far greater than being of one flesh with our husband or wife. And Paul is showing how all the more heinous sin of sexual immorality is for Christians because we are one spirit with God. So whomever you have sexual relations with, you draw a union with, not just physically, but in the deepest, most intimate sense of your life. And as a Christian, you pull Jesus right into that. Is he pleased? Is he pleased with this sexual activity? Now, if you're married, we'll address that in chapter seven. It's coming up and probably the answer is yes. But if you're not, and you're engaged in sexual activity, Jesus is not honored. Fornication does not honor Jesus. It's very straightforward. So what does Paul call us to do? My third point, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee from sexual immorality. Make war on your sin. Romans 8.13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. Killing sin in your life is the result of being justified and is evidence that you are justified by faith apart from works of the law. And if you are making war on your sin while simultaneously professing Christ, you have a sure sign of true belief in Christ. Why? Why is it that we can look at our desire to make war against our sin and say that, There's evidence here of true belief. Because sinners love to sin. They have no desire to fight against the flesh. When we walk in sin, especially sexual sin, we have no desire to fight against that. We run headlong into it. And sexual sin puts a specific brand on the body and it attaches itself in ways that other sins do not. I don't understand that fully and completely as Paul is saying that, but has something related to the fact that this completely overtakes all of who we are. Sex involves more than just parts of our body. It's all of our body. Our eyes and our hands. All of our physical self. And so this sin attaches itself in ways that other sins do not and walks with us physically and is pulled with us in every relationship. And Paul is saying, flee sexual immorality. Get away from this sin. Do whatever it takes to flee. It's no different than in Paul. It's no different today than it was in Paul's day. Today we don't see many people fleeing from sexual immorality. We see them running as fast as they can toward it and creating ways to walk in it. And here's where maybe I start to sound unrealistic and old-fashioned to some of you, but I'm probably younger than you, so I'm not that old-fashioned. The most common ideas and practices of dating and relationships for young people today are completely contrary to biblical wisdom and truth and are an evil device of Satan to watch the overwhelming majority of children and young adults fall into sexual immorality, period. 54% of high school students report that they are sexually active. 6% of them before the age of 13. 
30% of girls have unwed pregnancies before the age of 20. And half, one half, 50% of all new HIV infections are now being transmitted to teenagers in America. This is an absolute tragedy because we have bought into what the world has said is acceptable and sought to adapt it to our practices and said, it's okay. We've convinced ourselves that sexual immorality is now just something of a non-married culture that we expect. And sadly, the world does not see anything different in the church in regards to this. For instance, the idea that as we're growing up, we should have multiple relationships with people of the other sex. We need to... You need to date around, see what you like, see what you enjoy in a person, see if you find the right person, just go out with them, spend time alone, invest in a relationship and see where it goes. So we attach our heart to one person and then withdraw and then attach it to the next and withdraw and attach it to the next. And so we create an atmosphere where we continue to walk in temptation, we continue to walk in sin, we continue to walk in being broken because relationships were not lived out in the way God intended them to. Common practice now is to completely remove the family from a situation. Many fathers today, if a young man comes to them seeking his daughter's hand in marriage, will say, that's up to her. You want to marry my daughter? That's... She's the one who's going to marry. That's up to her. Well, according to the scriptures, a daughter belongs to her father until he gives her away into marriage. That's what the marriage ceremony, that's what that is. Who gives this man? Or who gives this woman to be united to this man? Woo! (laughs) Who gives this woman to be united to this man? Her mother and I. She belongs to us. And we have decided that He is the right man to take our daughter, to care for her, to provide for her, to protect her. But until that happens, she's ours. Instead, we've decided to remove the family from the situation. Whereas a guy should be coming to the home and dating a girl's dad for a long time before she, he ever has a desire to go out with her, we've said, bring him by the house sometime. We'd like to meet him. Much of dating today is without the intention of marriage whatsoever. We see more and more that young children say, and speak of the fact that they have boyfriends and girlfriends and it is encouraged. So, they're paving the way with hormones, setting the stage for a lifetime of regret because of sexual sin early in life and seeing no redeeming aspects in this world's system. Because of these things, these are aspects, these are only elements of the broader picture of sexual immorality that our culture has dived headfirst into. But because of this, some very wicked things have come about. Now, many men profess that they prefer pornography over reality. The average boy... And when I say average boy, I'm talking in the 90 percentile. The average boy sees pornography for the first time by eight years old. There was a study that a college group attempted to do to determine what are the effects of pornography in the life of a young man. And so they wanted to get two study groups, one who has engaged in Uh, pornography for a long period of time and they wanted another study group of young men who who had never seen pornography and never had anything to do with it. 
they couldn't do their experiment. After seeking amongst 10,000 individuals, they could not find one man who never had any interaction with a pornographic image or video or anything of that nature. This is our culture. And should we adapt to it, we are no further along than the Corinthians in our understanding of God's requirement for us. We must flee sexual sin lest we be devoured by it. And it will devour us very quickly. I've known many men who have struggled in these areas and they will tell you in their former life, before they were made new creations, they engaged in many things. Drugs, drunkenness, a whole list of things. They were thieves, some murderers. But every single one of them says, when God recreated me, these things were not a big deal to flee from. The one thing that sticks and will not get out of my head and continues to walk with me is my sin of sexual immorality. It clings. It holds on. And it is a terribly difficult fight to flee from. But we must, we must flee sexual immorality. Lastly, Paul says, glorify God in your body. Verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Do not let your body be profaned. It is a great honor that He would dwell within us. Why would we seek to profane that honor? You cannot live at your own disposal as a Christian. Indeed, if you are a true believer, you have no desire to live at your own disposal. Redemption will give us the bridle of obedience that helps us to restrain the sins of the flesh. And the body of man is subject to its creator and it must, with the soul, be devoted to glorifying God. So what does this mean? Well, it means for some of you that you cannot get out of bed in the morning with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and then come to worship and assume that all is well because you are at church. You don't understand the gospel. What we do in our bodies matters in our relationship to God. If you're in sexual immorality, just think of these questions. How's your prayer life? How's your time in the study of God's Word? How are your relationships with other Christians? Transparent? It'd be very difficult to have sex with your girlfriend and then meditate on the Proverbs unless you have an incredibly seared conscience. Sin has serious consequences and we must consider those consequences in our relationships it matters what our bodies do in our relationship to God so let me be absolutely 100% clear lest anyone comes out of here confused all sexual activity all of it with someone who is not your spouse, is sinful, wicked, idolatry, and it dishonors God. It is not glorifying Him with your body. That's it. And so you may want to ask the question, well, where's the line? There is no line. If you're asking that question, I don't think you get it. You're still locked in this religious law-keeping system, not gospel freedom to live in Christ for His glory. But check it out. Christianity is for those who blew it.
Christianity is for those of us who have blown it. So we don't have to lie to ourselves. We don't have to lie to others about our sin. And if we do lie in those things, we're simply lying ourselves into hell. Look, it is okay to not be okay. We can't stay there. We cannot dwell there. We cannot and we will not come to Jesus pure and undefiled. We can't do it. And in fact, the more we strive to do it, the more we will fail at it. We come to Jesus as those who are defiled, who are stained by our sins, and in His grace He redeems us and makes us new creations that His grace may abound all the more. And so, some of you, I'm calling for the first time to repent of your sin and believe on the Gospel of Jesus Christ and be set free from your desires for sexual immorality. Christ will set you free. That you may take such a gift from God and enjoy it in its proper means and ways. If you're in sexual immorality, you must confess your sin. You must repent. You must be open to transparency and accountability. And Jesus will honor that. Repent of this sin and flee from it. Flee to Jesus. You're not perfect. You never will be perfect because there is only one who is perfect and He died to wash it away. Praise be to God. Some of you need a lot of help in this area. Some of you are deceived into thinking that you're a believer who just struggles a little bit. This is very dangerous ground. You may be a believer. And you may struggle with sexual immorality. But if you have no desire in your heart whatsoever to flee, no desire whatsoever to repent and be cleansed of this sin, you're on very dangerous ground. Some of you may think that you're the exception to God's command in this. God gives no exceptions. Paul wrote no addendums to his letter to the Corinthians. We must strive, we must fight, we must make war on our sins, and we must give our lives to glorify God in our bodies. And if we do not, if we do not, then in many ways we are proving to ourselves and to others that we went out from what God has commanded because we were never of it. Plead with God. You who dwell in sexual immorality, plead with God that He would save your soul. And if you walk with Jesus and walk in sexual immorality, repent of your sin. Walk in the freedom and peace that the Gospel provides. Be released from the bondage of your sin that you walk and dwell in death no more. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can turn to Your Word and hear such a hard word. That we can see such difficult things that we fight against. That we strive against. That make war against our souls. That all of the world looks at and revels in. That most of our entertainment and our media and our attractions are all fueled by. Thanks be to God that we can look at those things and we can count those things as rubbish compared to the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. You are a gracious and merciful God and we thank You that while many of us have once walked in sexual immorality, 
that you have washed us, that you have sanctified us, that you have justified us, that you have called us your own, not because we were able to clean it up, not because we were able to purify our own lives, not because we in our own desires were able to flee the things of this world, no, but because of Jesus who transforms our hearts and makes us new creations that we may live and dwell with you forever because we have a longing for holiness that you give us. Help us, Lord, to understand the truth of the gospel and to apply that in our lives, that we're not striving after do's and don'ts. We're striving after making much of Jesus in all of life. Help us to ask the questions of wisdom that Paul applies. Is it profitable? Does it build up? Am I enslaved? Lord, if we are enslaved, free us from the bondage of slavery and help us to walk in the freeness and newness of life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're good and gracious and we thank You. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who do not know You those who have walked in here in sin, those who are here with consciences of guilt crying out to them because they currently live in sexual immorality, I pray for them, Lord. I pray that they don't leave here and block this out this morning, that Your Word bears a heavy weight on their hearts and that they have a great longing to repent and believe the Gospel that they would flee sexual immorality and they would restrain by the power of God within them these things that make war against our flesh and reserve them for the beauty and joy that exists when properly used within marriage. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the conviction the Holy Spirit brings. Thank You for giving us instruction that we might know how to live and walk according to all that You desire, that we would dwell in the way that You have created all things to be reconciled to Yourself. That in our actions, in our lives, we may proclaim to the world around us that Jesus is enough. In His name we pray. Amen.